Let's open our Bibles together to 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's always a blessing to be with you guys. It's a blessing to get together with guys who, who love the Lord. And uh, to be, I don't know what the proper word is, uh, to be blessed by the uh, worship team that God gave to our fellowship. I, I really just really enjoy their ministry so much. And uh, it's just good to be here enjoying it with you guys. It really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who works within us. We thank you, Lord, for the newness of life that we have because of Jesus Christ. And Father, even now I would ask that as we have gathered here in this place to set apart this day that we might receive from you, we do ask that you would speak to us now, draw us to yourself, continue to enlighten us concerning the things that you would have us to know, that we might live lives that are being transformed and also lives that uh, can be used as a catalyst to uh, transform others. Lift up our, our families to you, those of us who are married Lord, we lift up our wives. We who are parents lift up our children. We lift up our parents to you, Father, and grandchildren and just all of our connections that you've given to us. And I ask, Father, that you would work within us now. Draw us to yourself in a deep and continually progressive way. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Bob started his message with a silly, silly joke, and so I'm going to try and top it. <laughs> Actually, I heard about a guy who went to the Super Bowl, and while he was there at the game, he had these nosebleed seats. He was up in the top there, you know, right next to the Goodyear blimp. He couldn't see anything. So he brought some binoculars, and he's watching the game, and as he's watching the game, he notices that on the 50-yard line, there's an empty seat. And so he's watching the game, but noticing the seat, watching the game, noticing the seat. And then he thinks, there's nobody going to be seated there. So he sneaks on down. And he goes and scoots into the seat and sits down and begins to watch the game there. Now it's halftime. Turns to the guy next to him and he says, I can't believe that uh, somebody left this seat empty. It's a great game. And you would think that the person who, uh, who had bought the, t- the ticket would be here for the game. And the guy next to him says, well, to be honest with you, that's my wife's seat. And the guy gets all, oh, really? He goes, but, you know, he said, but my wife died. He said, so many years, she and I would just go to football games together. We eventually had season tickets. We started going to the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, that's just been a tradition for many years now. But my wife died, and so the seat is empty. And so the guy says, I'm so sorry. I, I, I shouldn't have taken this seat. And he goes, no, it's all right if you, if you take it. He goes, It's empty. He goes, oh, well, thanks, but I, I've got to ask you a question. He goes, what is that? He says, how come you didn't invite a friend or a, or a family member to, to use the seat? And he goes, well, I would have, but they're all at her funeral. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I like that mean-spirited joke that you can only say at men's conferences, you know. <laughs> Yes, sir. In chapter 2 here in 2 Timothy, at verse 3, Paul writing writes, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
Now, as we begin our study, let me remind you of something that is obvious. As you study the writings of the Apostle Paul, very often Paul would use military metaphors to illustrate the Christian life. Uh, That's because he wanted uh, us to be instructed uh, to always remember that, that we are actually to be men of war. We are involved in a cosmic war over the destiny of human souls. And, and that war is uh, something that is constantly fought. And the souls that we are, as Christians, uh, fighting against the enemy in order that we might somehow help to secure are, are the souls of our, our parents. They're the souls of our children. They're the souls of our, our grandchildren, our friends. I mean, we are in a cosmic war at the moment. And uh, though we find ourselves in battles in the Middle East and all, the, the war that we are all in is a real cosmic war because it has eternal repercussions. And so he wanted, he wanted believers to be constantly aware of the spiritual warfare that surrounds them. That's why when you read the writings of Paul, you'll notice that very often he uses military metaphors to illustrate points that he wants to make. Uh, that's why in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, he says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, he speaks of the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, he speaks of the weapons of our warfare not being carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's why to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he says, Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul uses military metaphors to make us aware of the fact that we are in a cosmic struggle, that we are in spiritual war. All of us are aware of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. That's a passage that relates to the armor, the weapons of our warfare that God has given to us. Weapons that include things like our, 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 our waist being girded with, uh, with truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and having the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These are all military terms re- related to the, the armor that God has presented us to wear. And as we look at Ephesians, when he begins it in, in verse 11 in chapter 6, he says... Um, He says, put the whole armor of God on that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so you are to be sunken into this armor. Uh, He speaks of the wiles of the devil there. That's the methodius that speaks of the methods, the methodology, his schemes, his craftiness, his cunningness, his deception. He says you are to have spiritual weapons ready to deal with his methods because these weapons that we have enable us to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so over and over and over again, as you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, he speaks concerning the fact that we're in war. Satan is an ancient enemy, and he's been waging war against God and us. And he's 100% committed to the battle, and he ceaselessly seeks to destroy. And we need to make no mistake about it. He desires to destroy you. So many times I've heard people speak of the devil almost in kind terms. The fact is he hates you. The fact is he wants to destroy you. 
And the Bible makes that very clear. In 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may what? Whom he may devour. He destroys. He's the destroyer, and he wants to destroy your life. Many of us understand that because our lives were being destroyed by him prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We understand being devoured by the enemy because he had been destroying us for many years. He has schemes that he's developed. He intends to undermine your walk with God. He wants to wound you. He wants to cripple you. He wants to render you useless in your battle against Him. Now, as I think about Him, I want to know what, is, what are some of the methodologies? What are the, th- the devices that He uses against me? What are the things I ought to be aware of? Well, there are various things that He does. The first thing I think that is most, uh, most obvious is He casts doubt on God's Word. He casts doubt on God's Word. How do I know that? Well... I've shared this before, perhaps even here. If you read your Bible, and I know you guys do, if you were to pick up your Bible and begin reading in Genesis, in chapter 1, not the words, just look at the punctuation. If you were to start to read just the punctuation, meaning just look for a comma, look for the period, the semicolon, colon, whatever, just begin to look for all the punctuation. You might find this interesting. You go through chapter 1, you go through chapter 2, and you never encounter a question mark. What you have are statements. But when you get to chapter 3, the very first question that you ever find, the first place of punctuation that you ever find that has a question mark is when Satan says, has God said? It's the very first question in the Bible, and it comes from the mouth of Satan. Do I believe that he questions the Word of God? Absolutely. He questions it, and he calls it into question in your life. The very first question in the Bible is, has God said? And the second question is when God says, Adam, where are you? Now, isn't that interesting? Adam, you bought into the lie, what has it gotten you? Whenever we doubt the Word of God, whenever we begin to think that it is not true, we're actually falling into the trap of the enemy. We're, trapping in, we're being trapped by Satan. Satan has a massive propaganda a machine that he lodges against God and his word constantly. A second thing is he spiritually blinds unbelievers through spiritual deception. He tries to communicate to us that there is no war. There's nothing to be worried about. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Calls into question God's word, and he also blinds unbelievers. His deception, his greatest deception, is to convince people of one thing, and that is that they do not need Jesus Christ to go to heaven. That is his greatest deception. You know, right now in the United States, we're seeing this. It's actually uh, fruit uh, that has been, uh, basically fruit that is being grown from seeds that have been planted for many years. But we see that people in the United States today are very religious people, very religious people, but they consider religion and spirituality to be pretty much equal. Therefore, if you believe in God, no matter what kind of God, basically they're all the same, they will say to you, as long as you have some kind of faith. And so spirituality is taking the place of the Christian faith right now. As long as I have a religious preference, everything seems to be okay. And so what he's doing is he's convincing people that they don't need the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When I got saved um, a few years ago now, back in 1970, at the end of 1970, when I got saved, I began to share, as people had taught me to do, about what God can do, you know, because we were taught, you know, read the Word of God, and we were taught, learn to pray, fellowship, and share with people what God has done. And so I would begin to, to try to do that, to share a little bit about what Jesus Christ does in a person's life and all. And I would say to my friends, and I can still remember doing this, I would say to them, you know, I'm going to heaven. Now, to me, that was just a revolutionary thought that I could actually enter into the kingdom of God. I'm going to heaven. And my friends would inevitably say to me, no, you're not. You're not good enough. What makes you good enough to go to heaven? And you actually had to teach about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and to share what God does because your friends, my friends at that point, would say you're not good enough because they knew that there was a quality of life that was required of a person who would enter into the kingdom of God. They knew that. So they would argue and they'd say, look at you, you're into dope, you're into alcohol and all the, the things that go along with it. What makes you think you're good enough? And I'd be able to share, well, it's not my works, it's God's work. Jesus Christ did it on the cross for me. I've asked God to forgive me, a miserable sinner, and come into my life and transform me. It's Jesus Christ. That was 35 years ago. Today, everybody goes to heaven. It doesn't matter what you are. In the press, you will hear this constantly. You'll even hear of these guys, these rock stars who overdose and their friends are partying and they say, oh yeah, man, he's looking down at us right now. No, he's looking in any direction. It's up. He is not looking down, man. I want you to know that because he didn't go to heaven. If he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't have hope. But the enemy in his spiritual deception has tried to convince us that we go to heaven automatically because we're trying, because we're religious, because uh, we went through certain things. Me, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I guess I'm speaking to a, a large group of people who understand what I mean. I'm not downing the Roman Catholic Church. That's what, not what my message is all about right now. What I am saying is this. In my upbringing, my mom took me at the age of six months old to a small church right outside of Alvera Street called La Placita. Some of you perhaps have heard of it. It's an old church there in L.A. I was baptized in uh, December of 1950. And, uh, and I grew up uh, uh, believing myself to be a Christian because I did the, uh, you know, the communion and I did the, the um, you know, the penance of uh, confession and, uh, and everything, you know, that was necessary confirmation. And I thought myself to be a Christian because of religious training. I had a, a cousin named Carlos and, and he was a Jehovah's Witness. And, and he and I would on occasion debate religion. And I can still remember arguing with him while we were smoking pot. And I was saying to him, man, you know, you're not, you know, you're not a Christian. I am, you know. I'm serious. I mean, I bet you there's a number of guys in here who know exactly what I'm talking about, you know, because that's the way it was, you know. And so, you know, but, but if you'd have argued with me and told me, um, David, you're not a Christian, I would have argued hammer and tong with you because I memorized so much information at the age of 7 and 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was able to speak about the Apostles' Creed. I was able to, to talk to you about the sacraments and the whole nine yards. Because that was my religious upbringing. But I did not know Jesus Christ. I had never been born again. I had been deceived. And that's what the enemy does. He deceives you into believing that you don't need Christ. That you may even already have Him if you've gone through ritual. And he has all media at his disposal. He has the television. He has radio, which includes satellite broadcasting, newspapers, magazines, books. He has movies, CDs, DVDs, secular education, the 
the judicial system, political systems at his beck and call. Recently, a a woman, I call her the prophetess Rosie, Rosie O'Donnell. (laughs) And some of you, maybe you heard about what she said, you know. Radical Christianity, she said, is just as threatening as radical Islam in a country like America. Think about that for just a moment. When's the last time you heard about Christians climbing in a plane and going into a tower to kill 3,000 civilians? When's the last time you heard about something like that? But this idiot, excuse me, I'm a Christian. You know, I'm not as good as Robert Furrow. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as good as Robert Furrow. I didn't pray for her except I, an Old Testament prayer. Smite her. Break her teeth, oh God. And then save her. Toothless Rosie, I don't care. I mean, but you have these people up there saying the most insane thing and they get it on the press and people just agree with that. Uh, There's a fellow by the name of Bill Maher. He recently was on O'Reilly. I don't know if some of you might have seen this. But Bill Maher, while on O'Reilly, said this. He said, I'm only the last in a long line of people to speak out against organized religion and to say that it's dangerous and a mass psychosis. And all you have to do is look around the world from, from story to story to story to understand that. So O'Reilly asks, so Mother Teresa's a psychotic? And he mentioned Catholic charities. Mar said, okay, there's nothing Mother Teresa or charities are doing that they couldn't do without the silliness of religion attached to it. O'Reilly says, but they do it because Christianity says, love your brother, help the poor. This is a philosophy. Mar says, oh, that's a wonderful sentiment. Jesus as a philosopher is wonderful. There's no greater role model, in my view, than Jesus Christ. It's just a shame that most of the people who follow him or call themselves Christians act nothing like him. O'Reilly says, most of them, most Christians are bad. Mar, in this country, well, most Christians don't act Christ-like. Mar says, well, most people who are religious in this country are like cafeteria Catholics. They pick and choose from the religious parts that they want to follow. The ones that make the headlines, the evangelical Christians, are usually the ones who are behind everything that represents intolerance and bigotry. And so he's speaking about you if you're evangelical. You are everything that represents intolerance and bigotry because you stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. That is the United States that you and I live in right now. That goes basically unchallenged uh, by many people. He says that we are psychotics. He says that we are uh, evil. Um, Rosie says that we're worse than radical Islam, yet Christians are the ones who founded the orphanages. It's Christians who started colleges and hospitals and hospices and poverty programs. We've sent missionaries throughout the world, started Sunday schools to teach impoverished children to read and to write. We've marched for and fought for human rights. We've been at the forefront of disaster relief. In our fellowship, without even asking for an offering, without receiving an offering, I mentioned that there's a need when the tsunami hit and $108,000 came in to relieve them. $85,000 unasked for came in for Katrina relief. I have to ask the question, what did atheists do? What did the homosexuals do to relieve the pain? What did Bill Maher do? What did the people who believe like him do to help these people through disasters? Nothing. They did nothing. It's because the body of Christ is doing good things. And we have... We have for centuries since Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the way it works, guys. But it's it's a propaganda machine. 
It's a machine that's blinding people uh, to think that we aren't uh, of any value whatsoever. I, uh, I wrote a, a letter to the editor in our local newspaper, and somebody writes and says, you know, I can hardly wait until the Christians are gone. You know, there's it's trouble to us. I can hardly wait until they're gone. And I was sharing with our church, I said, we will be gone. The rapture's going to happen, then they'll discover what we're here for. The world is the system of the Antichrist, and it rejects Messiah Jesus. The Bible says every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and in, is even now already in the world. And even as we've already heard, as Ponch said last night so well, everybody, every knee one day will ultimately bow down to Jesus Christ. That includes Mohammed, that includes Buddha, and every other ism that has ever existed. Mohammed will bow his knee to Jesus Christ and say, you are Lord. That's the way it is. And we know that as believers. Anyway... That's my introduction. <laughs> just teasing, just teasing. Got more to say. A third thing that he does is he inspires bad doctrine, saying things about God that are simply not true or unclear. Deception is the primary sign that we are living in the last days. Remember with me in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus is asked the question concerning the signs of his coming and when will all these things be? Jesus Christ actually asked, what is the sign of your coming? And Jesus said, the sign of my coming will be deception. Take heed that no one deceives you. Now, if Jesus said something one time, you listen. In that one chapter, three times he repeats that single warning. You take heed that you are not deceived. You be careful, for false teachers will arise, deceiving. And Jesus Christ made it very clear, guys, that in the last days there will be a, an apostasy. There will be a drifting away from the truth that you find in Scripture. I think that we are in that movement right now. When you can go to a church and not have a Bible required... You don't need a Bible. It's more about entertainment. It's more about bringing you on in and making you feel comfortable. It's, it's the uh, church that's a home on the range. You know, we're never as heard a discouraging word. Nobody gets convicted. Nobody has any reason to change. Everybody thinks they're just fine the way they are. You're in danger. I don't think that the pastor should come up and beat the sheep, but he should love them enough to tell them the truth. And if the Word of God says thus and so, then guys, let's get together and do what Jesus Christ says. That's what He says to do. And why lie to them? Tell them the truth. Listen, if somebody came to my house and said, I'm going to want to take your daughter out, but I want you to know that I'm going to do everything I can to have sex with her, that man's not going to walk away with two legs. <laughs> and I'm going to be warning her about this wolf because he's going to destroy you if he can. What kind of pastor won't stand up in front of the church and say, you watch out for false doctrine? Listen, if he loves the sheep, he's going to tell them the truth. And I don't care if they get mad and cry and bow. That's too bad. Jesus Christ's truth is worth it. It's worth it. And we need to preach it to the people or else we're going to end up with deception in the pews. And I don't want that. And so my, my sheep know I love them enough to tell them the truth. They get hurt feelings every once in a while. I don't know why. You know, well, that's the way it goes. But anyway, <laughs> I'm playing with you guys. You know I am, right? <laughs> Fourth thing, he sows seeds of division amongst God's children. 
If he can divide the church, he renders it useless. He uses the age-old tactic of divide and conquer. So he sowed seeds of discord and division within the body of Christ. A lot of times it's people who got hurt feelings through something that was said, perhaps even things that I just said, and people get hurt feelings, you know. Uh, It's a good thing I'm not the pastor of this church. Ray's going to have to handle that problem tomorrow. (laughs) But he does. I mean, he sowed seeds of discord. And, you know, people will go out after church and and gossip about other people in the church, you know. And, and, uh, you know, I've told our fellowship, if you want to talk about somebody, do it to God when you're on your knees. Don't be talking to somebody else about them. If you've got a problem, speak to them about it. I mean, be a man. Speak to them about it. Say, you hurt my feelings, and get it solved, and get it reconciled. God hates discord. That's one of the seven things he says he hates. I hate discord. He who sows discord amongst the brethren, God says, I hate that. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to make us one. How is the world going to know that God has the power to transform lives if the children of God are constantly fighting and whining and crying and bouncing from church to church? We need to be in there and work it out together as family, man. You know, I, I get, my brother and I, when we were growing up, we had our fights, you know, but he's always been my brother. As ugly as he is, he's my brother. <laughs> we're very close. We've been close all of our life. Brothers can have problems, but you want to know something? We're still brothers. We're there together. We're blood, man. That's the way it is, and nothing can divide us because we might be fighting together, but if you try to get in between us, we're against you because that's what brothers do, right? I mean, we unite. Let's be united in Christ. Let's not be in this discord garbage where we bounce from place to place whining about how I was hurt over there. You're going to get hurt everywhere you go because human beings hurt each other. But you want to know something? We also forgive one another. We also love one another. And we press on and move forward because that's what God has called us to do. When the enemy comes into the body of Christ and begins to tear it up, we need to unite rather than divide. And that's what the enemy does. He destroys that way and he's been doing that. We are in war. I've discovered something when you're in a battle, you don't care about that person in the foxhole next to you as long as he's got your back. That's what matters. And I think we need to understand that we're in a battle right now. So Paul is speaking. That really is your introduction. I better get into verse 3. And he's exhorting Timothy to endure hardship. Bob's already very well spoken and stated that endurance, hanging in there, begins in the strength of grace. It begins in the grace of God. That's why he had said in verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong. Have that internal strength. Keep on being strong in Christ-centered grace. And how does that happen? Well, that happens when we maintain our closeness to Jesus Christ by clinging to God very tightly. Uh, In Deuteronomy 30, verse 20, the Bible says, Love the Lord your God, obey His voice, and cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days. It also comes through a proper understanding of the Word of God. You see that in verse 2 here when it says, Those things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You're in Christ-centered grace and you're in God's Word of grace. So knowing God's Word prepares you for the hardship that you endure. Believers know that hardship is simply part of being a Christian. And because that's true, Paul exhorts Timothy concerning the reality of hardship. He says to him, you must not shrink back. Be willing to suffer hardship for the gospel. Why? Because battles bring casualties, and therefore you must be willing to endure whatever it is that you go through. Timothy had a lot of reason for discouragement. Paul Paul writes about that. Bob's already mentioned some of the things. He was a shy young man. He was a 
He was a, a young man in a culture that valued age. He was often in poor health. He was under constant opposition. So Paul is speaking to him and says, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus. Now, I find it interesting how he says this, endure hardship as a good soldier. Why did you say good soldier, Paul? Because not every soldier is a good soldier. Not every soldier is a good soldier. Some are good soldiers and others are not. Some soldiers are, are uh, insubordinate. Some are, are flippant. Some, some are lazy. Some soldiers can be cowardly. Some are indifferent. Some can be sloppy. Some don't keep in step when you're marching. Some uh, just do their time, try to work the system for all they can get out of it. Some try to find ways to get out of work or even out of the service. We, I was a, I'm a military vet myself. Uh, I served with the Army, and, and there were guys who were getting what we called 212s. You know, they'd get uh, 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 general discharges under honorable conditions. They wanted to get out. They did not want to do their time. They were not necessarily good soldiers. But Paul is saying, you must endure hardship as a good soldier. Uh, enduring hardship is normally, in the military, normally a shared experience, though. It's something that you are trained in from basic training. How many vets do I have? Who am I speaking to? Okay, you know this. In basic training, the first thing they taught us is you are part of a unit. You are not an individual. Uh, some of you perhaps have seen the Army of One commercials. I, as an Army vet, have a problem with that commercial. And I'll tell you why. Because we were not taught we are an Army of One. We were taught we were a unit. We work together. We're a team. It's not all about me. It's about us. And when we went in, they said, I don't care if you're black, if you're brown, if you're white, if you're yellow, if you're red. When you've got that uniform on, you're green. You belong to Uncle Sam. That's what we were taught. Anybody ever hear that? You are green. You wear that or blue or whatever your colors might have been. That's what you are. We were brought into a unit. We were a team. We worked together. If your buddy is on the ground, you pick him up. You never leave him. You drag him back and you give your life for him if necessary because that's your buddy. We were taught that in basic training and the training we went through as military men. You endure hardship. You endure hardship together because it's a unit, because you work together. It's something you all go through together. And that's something that brings the esprit de corps that is so necessary if you're going to be victorious. It's a shared thing. You all do the same basic things. You sleep in the same barracks. You eat the same lousy food. You wear the same uniforms. Do the same training. You get up and go to bed around the same time. You endure things together. And you, through that training, become very close. We became very close. I had some very good friends when I was in the military, like brothers. And, and it's that way. And, uh, and we share all kinds of things. I, I had a friend of mine uh, just... As an aside, it's kind of dumb things that we shared together. I had a friend of mine, his name was Stevens. And uh, Stevens, and there was a, another young man. It's been so long now. I, I think his last name was Brionis, but I'm not quite sure. I do remember being in Los Angeles, going into the uh, center there where they were going to send us off to Fort Ord up in Northern California. And, uh, and I'll call him Brionis because I, I don't remember his name, but he was, he was a, a little... Um, what we used to call a vato. He was a, a cholo. He was from, uh, from East L.A. And it, no, it wasn't Pancho. It was, it was uh, Brionis. <laughs> and Brionis was about five foot two, weighed about 110 pounds soaking wet. And he had a... Anybody here know what a pompadour is? Am I speaking to anybody who knows what that is? Your hair is like this tall, and it looks like a 52 Chevy. <laughs> and uh, his girlfriend was a little taller than he. I think her name was Sad Girl. And she came walking in, or Foxy or Silky, I don't know. But anyway, she came walking in, 
And she was taller than him because she was wearing these real big heels. And her hair was ratted up like this high. You know, and I, I just, I just, you know, just tripped on them when they walked in because he was tall and he was short and he was all walking, tried to be tall, so he made his hair like that. But it turned out to be one of my friends, and I really liked Brionis. Well, Brionis went home on leave, and when he went on, home on leave, he discovered that his girlfriend had been unfaithful to him, went out with another guy, and he came back just so drunk. He was so drunk, and he came in, and he's just staggering in, and it's about 11 o'clock at night, and you can hear him making noise. Hey, Brionis, what's up? Ah, you know, and he's and he's really drunk. So you know, we all had the bunk beds, and his rack was the upper rack. And, you know, Stevens was the lower. And so he comes in, but he just doesn't want to climb to the upper rack. And Stevens isn't there, so he just climbs into Stevens' rack. As he's there, he's laying down. He gets sick, and he vomits all over the pillow, all over the blankets, everything. He gets up and makes the bed. And he climbs, <laughs> he climbs into his own rack and goes to sleep, right? Well, everybody hears him out there doing his thing and everything, so it's all quiet for about an hour, and then you hear somebody say, Stevens is here. So the whole, all of us are awake, you know, laying there just waiting for you know. And you hear Stevens come in, and he opens up the wall locker, and he's changing, you know, and everybody's totally quiet. <laughs> and then you hear him pulling his blankets. You can hear the blankets. <sighs> ah! He starts to scream, man. He climbed in and he got it all over him, man. And oh, we laughed so bad. Oh, that's a good memory. <laughs> we share all kinds of things in the military. But you do. You become like family. We all laugh and we're dumb and we do silly things, but we're very close, very close. Now, when Paul is writing here, he's basically telling Timothy this. Timothy, I would not ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do. I want you to go through things because I go through them. We all go through them together. And, and we've already noticed that Paul had trials that he mentioned and all of that. And Timothy is shared in trials and he's saying, don't let those things get you down. Uh, Bob is very right as he says trials very often they may be small but they they don't they don't leave and sometimes the trials grow we we call them children don't we I mean they don't leave you know but we go through some things with trials you know and sometimes they do not disappear they just come home with grandchildren and and uh, you know I uh, back a few years ago a few years ago we went through a series of pretty serious things in in our personal life you know I had a young man in my church his name was Marcel. Marcel had been with us since he was about seven years old or so, and he had, uh, he had uh, cancer, and, and uh, he would come and sit in my office as, uh, uh, before I went out to teach because he couldn't be amongst the people. He was taking chemotherapy, and, and I'd known him since he was seven, and in many ways he was like a son to me. And, and uh, I get the phone call from his mom. His mama says, Marcel just died, you know, and, and that, that broke our heart. Then my father went home to be with the Lord, and then after that, you know, I had a memory a loss where I couldn't remember. Uh, I had a short-term memory loss. And then uh, a couple of years after that, my father-in-law dies. And, 
you know, then my daughter, who at that time was, was unwed, comes home right after my father-in-law dies and, and tells us, Daddy, I'm pregnant. I mean, we went through one thing after another after another. And you guys who are familiar with surfing or body surfing or whatever know that sometimes the waves will hit and you come back up. You take some air and bang, you're down again. And then you come back up a moment later and you're down again because the set just keeps rolling and it feels like you're just going to drown. And eventually you're at the top just so exhausted. That's where we were. That's where we were. But I take my strength in what Bob was teaching today in the grace of God. In the grace of God because there's not a single thing that you go through that God does not give you the strength to endure. And he actually strengthens you as a result of those things. It's hard for... uh, It's hard for most believers to understand what suffering for Jesus actually means, though. Again, we live in a secular world that's rapidly becoming more and more hostile to Christians. Perhaps you read recently, I'm sure you did, of the the Catholic Pope Benedict XVI as he quoted a reported conversation between a 14th century Byzantine emperor, a a man by the name of Emmanuel Paleologus II, and a Persian scholar, and the Pope said... The emperor comes to speak about the issue of jihad, holy war. He said, I quote, Show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread the sword, uh, spread by the sword the faith he preached. Well, we have a, a newspaper called the Orange County Register, and uh, they were running uh, an article under that. And so under the banner, What Was the Pope Thinking?, they, they basically said he had no right to make statements like that um, because it's just not right. This is really a peaceful religion. But as you see the churches being burned in Gaza, you begin to wonder. Uh, the Muslims worldwide uh, began demanding that the Pope apologize, and, and they determine whether he apologizes enough. And Muslim leaders began to cry out for war against Christians. The Associated Press reported that an Islamic extremist group in Cairo released a statement that includes the words, the only thing acceptable is conversion to Islam or be killed by the sword. Uh, I've never heard or seen a Muslim apologize when Muslims call Jews monkeys and call them pigs. Uh, The destruction of Israel and the United States is a constant theme. No one apologizes for it. Al-Qaeda in Iraq warned the Pope on September 18th that its war against Christianity and the West will go on until Islam takes over the world. An Al-Qaeda internet message addressed the Pope as a worshiper of the cross and said, You and the West are doomed, as you can see from the defeat in Iraq, Afghanistan, Chechnya, and elsewhere. We will break up the cross, spill the liquor, impose uh, the Jizyah tax, which is a levy on non-Muslims, and the only thing acceptable is conversion to Islam or death by the sword. The Mujahideen Shura Council said, You infidels and despots, we will continue our jihad and never stop until God avails us to chop your necks and raise the fluttering banner of monotheism when God is, uh, God's rule is established governing all peoples and all nations. A Catholic nun is shot down in Somalia after dedicating 38 years to help the sick in Africa, and her last recorded words to those who killed her were, I forgive, I forgive. What a contrast. But we are in war. We are in war. We are in a spiritual war. If you'd have told me 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that Islam would be on the rise and be the fastest moving religious system in the world, I would have thought, you're not correct. You're not really thinking things through. But it is definitely on the the rise, and they do see Christianity as their enemy. There's just absolutely no doubt about that, guys. We need to understand that. 
Now, am I calling for a holy crusade? Of course not. What I'm calling for is, let's wake up. Let's wake up. Get busy sharing Jesus Christ with people because if they don't accept Jesus Christ, they will be open to Antichrist and any form that he might give to them that deceives them to believe that spirituality is equal. It is most certainly not. You see, this is new to many Christians because most of us aren't used to facing death, loss of a job, or even imprisonment. Normally, being Christian excludes you from a good job or the ability uh, to live in the way that you would like. But the more faithful you are to the Lord, the more the enemy will oppose you. Hardship is part of the Lord's service, and we're called to endure. We know we'll be afflicted, but it's something that we are expected to pay. A soldier on active duty is on call every day of the week, rain or shine. He is owned by Uncle Sam. His time, his health, his body, his skills, and everything is owned by the U.S. government. You go to bed when they tell you, you get up, you work, you eat, you shave, you cut your hair at somebody else's command. And even when you're on leave, you are subject to recall at a moment's notice. So we need to understand that. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We are part of His army. And so we will experience difficulty. But what are we to do? We hold fast and we press on. We may be rejected by family. We may be rejected by friends, parents, co-workers, fellow students. Yet we cling to Jesus Christ because the Word of God says, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. And so we find strength in that. Listen, when I got saved, I, I came home fully aware of the fact that I could get my mom and dad upset at me. But guess what? I was a hippie and I'd been a doper and I didn't care. I just didn't care. So I came home and the first thing I began to do is I began to share with them. I began to share. And that you guys have all heard me say this, I'm sure. And I said to my dad, Daddy, you're a good man. You're the best man that I, I'll ever know. But you will be the best man in hell if you don't give your heart to Jesus Christ. And I said, Daddy, I'm going to heaven, and I don't want to go to heaven without you. Bow your head and pray you're going to receive Jesus Christ right now. And my dad did. And my dad committed his heart to Christ, and my mother did. And they were members of my first Bible study that I ever did. And what was such a joy was I, not only did I bring my father into the kingdom of God, but I sent him home as the pastor officiating his funeral. I brought him to Christ, and I delivered him to Christ. And that was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. Bible makes it very clear, guys. That if we endure, we shall reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. I want to remain faithful to him. To be that soldier. So that when the day comes, he looks at me. He can say, well done, my good and my faithful servant. Our Father, we ask that you would work in us today. And may you continue your work in these men. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, men.